so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech Newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Leah Savitz to talk about her new book, The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, which she co-authored with Marvin Alasky with Crossway. Leah reports on abortion for World News Group, where she currently writes the weekly Vitals Roundup and a newsletter of pro-life news. She lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan with her husband, Stephen. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Leah, thank you so much for joining us here today on the Digital Public Square. It's a real joy to have you. This is a book that I have long looked forward to, and it's fun to have on my shelf and kind of slowly work through as we kind of unpack the long story in many ways, over almost 400 years of story of abortion here in America. But before we dive into that conversation specifically, I'd love to hear a little bit about your story. Obviously, you co-wrote this uh, with Marvin Alasky, the great journalist, and but I want to hear a little bit about your story. Kind of what brought you into journalism, what brought you into writing, and then why did you all want to write a book like this specifically at this moment? Yeah, so thanks for having me on, Jason. I'm so glad to be here. I was an English major in college, and I wanted to do some sort of writing, but I didn't know what kind. So when I graduated, I ended up doing like writing for marketing um, at a small business, and I didn't love that. So I heard about the World Journalism Institute, which is my current employer, World News Group, they put on a college training program every spring for recent graduates from college and college students or college age people. And so I attended that during a vacation from my former employer. <laughs> um, and I loved what, what we got to learn about, just the style of journalistic writing. I just thought it was really interesting hearing the perspective of People like Marvin Olasky talking about biblically objective journalism, I thought that sounded pretty appealing as opposed to I thought journalism always had to do with politics and like tearing people apart and, you know, hanging out their dirty laundry, stuff like that. Um, but then when I learned about how it's really kind of human interest, like telling people's stories um, and doing it from the perspective of a Christian, um, basing your worldview and how you're telling these stories on scripture that was very appealing. So I ended up taking an internship with World, and then they hired me full-time in 2019. 
And when they hired me, they hired me to write about abortion. Now, the weird part is that I didn't really have any past experience with the issue. I was familiar with it kind of at a basic level. And I knew that I was pro-life, that I was against abortion, that it was wrong. But ever since then, it's just kind of been a crash course in learning about the history of abortion, learning, trying to keep up with all the stuff that has been happening in the last couple of years. And Marvin, since I was doing the reporting on abortion for World, he invited me or asked me if I would help him with this book. So that's kind of how we ended up together kind of working on this project for the last couple of years. So, Yeah, it's a really fascinating project because, I mean, you guys cover a broad swath of history. And you're covering it, obviously, you're, the way you're doing history is a little different than maybe some may be kind of a, a used to in terms of academic history or something like that. And we'll dive into that a little bit more. Um, but it is, it's, you're obviously, this was a good time to write something like this and to publish it. Obviously, this comes out in 2023. In 2022, we have the Dobbs decision that kind of reshapes the entire pro-life movement, especially here in America. But in the introduction, uh, Marvin writes a little bit about how you all were planning to originally publish the book kind of in anticipation of this kind of 50-year anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And then the Supreme Court, as we all know, overruled the bad precedent in Roe uh, with the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization last June. So how did the Dobbs decision, especially, I mean, this happens in the summer of 2022. This book is coming out in January of 2023 for anyone's kind of familiar with the writing process, much less the production and editing process. That's a pretty major shift, right? As your book is probably going to print. It's a nice hardback edition. I encourage you to grab the book. How did that decision change the process of writing, but even specifically of the kind of editing and production? Yeah, so all of our chat or most of our chapters, we sent the initial draft in to our publisher, our editor. I think it was the very end of March, like the last day of March, we sent in, you know, most of the chapters. But we knew that there was a decision coming down in the Dobbs case, and we knew that it could change things. We were kind of expecting, Marvin and I were kind of expecting it to be a ruling that would uphold Mississippi's 15 week protection for unborn babies, which was kind of the law at issue in the case. We weren't expecting a full overturn of Roe v. Wade, but we knew that whatever happened, that it would kind of change the landscape a little bit. We wanted to make sure that the last chapter, that we had one more chapter that we could write to kind of give an update to whatever happened. So that last chapter was due in July because we knew that the decision would come out probably by the end of June, you know, let's hope. So we get that decision and it was my job to write the last chapter. Well, of course, with the leak of the draft, I don't know if everyone remembers, but Politico or someone leaked to Politico a draft of the decision and it came out in May, early May. So we had all that time to kind of like look at that draft, which ended up being very similar to the final ruling and kind of get familiar with it. I was becoming familiar with how different states were preparing for the overturn of Roe v. Wade, what laws they had, what state court precedents they had in place that could um, make it difficult for even Republican-led states to protect babies from abortion. So I was kind of getting familiar with all that. And then in July, I wrote that last chapter, chapter 50, and Marvin wrote the epilogue. I think we made a couple changes throughout the book just to kind of update if there was something referencing that would be relevant, I guess, to the, the issue of the overturn. Um, we've made some changes in the book, but thankfully we were, you know, we're in the editing process as all these things were coming out. So we were able to kind of update things and make sure that 
we were taking that into account. But the nice part about the book is that it is historical. So it wasn't like we're writing about the decision and, you know, oh my goodness, like most of our book is irrelevant now. No, like the history is still super relevant, even if Roe v. Wade has been overturned. You know, it was there was abortion in the country long before Roe, and there will continue to be abortion even after Roe. So I think that kind of gives a good perspective in the book too. Yeah, I think writing a book like this on such a perennial issue and such an important issue is daunting, I think, for most people. Also, covering over 400 years of history in a single volume is quite daunting for most people as well. And you guys kind of accomplished both in many ways. I would love to hear a little bit more about kind of how the work came together, like the background behind the book of what led up to this, what kind of decisions are you guys having to make along the way as you're thinking through how to tell this history. And I'm particularly interested in something that's noted pretty early on, even in the foreword by Robert P. George, he writes that this is a street level history versus a suite level history. What's kind of behind that in the story and how you all are kind of approaching to tell this uh, monumentally important story? Yeah, so I guess this, the story behind the book, um, it's mostly Marvin's. He was he was the the guy that kind of came up with the idea that he wanted to write this book. So I got to be along for the ride. But I think he was thinking about it long before kind of asking me if I had help. So originally, from my understanding, based on what he's told me, he wanted to do kind of an update of a book that he, he wrote and that was published in the 90s called Abortion Rights. Now, there is some material in this book that the story of abortion in America, it, there is some material that also appears in abortion rights. But as he was doing the research for an update of abortion rights, he realized like, oh, wow, like there's just a lot more information now available, especially online, than there used to be like in the 90s. So there's a lot more newspaper clippings available. You can read the archives of Maryland online. You know, there, there are all these historical records that were not as accessible before. So he realized he couldn't just kind of update abortion rights. He wanted to do a whole new book, like obviously with some of the same material, but it had to be a new book. And then thinking through kind of how to structure it, he kind of came up with this idea of doing the A, B, C, D, E's of abortion. And I think, you know, there are more letters too, but the idea is how do these different elements, so A, and he talks about this in the, in the introduction, A would be anatomy. So what's the understanding of fetal anatomy at different points in American history? What's the understanding of B, the Bible? How does that affect people's view of abortion? C, what was the community's reaction to abortion? D, what's the danger associated with abortions? E, um, what's the enforcement of pro-life laws or laws against abortions or, you know, or the lack of enforcement. So he kind of had these different structures of how he wanted to look at this issue. And so we talked about how that, how that would go through the whole book and um, especially into my sections, what would that look like as the part I wrote was more recent history. So how do all of those issues that he looks at in the, you know, the historical records and the 1600s, how does that trace down to where we are today? And when you, you mentioned the street level history as opposed to a suite level history, um, that's actually language that uh, Marvin uses a lot, even in just the context of in the training that he would do at World Journalism Institute when I attended. That was a big emphasis that I don't know if I could tell you any of the specific lectures that he gave on that issue, but I do remember it being kind of woven throughout 
all of the training for world reporters is that, no, you don't want just talking heads. You don't want, you know, what people are saying in their ivory towers about issues. You want to get down to the streets, talk to the people who are really affected by the ideas, by the laws, and what does it actually look like in how they live their lives? How does it play out? And so I think all those ABCDEs of abortion kind of factor into that. It kind of gave us a framework to look at all of those issues and how it plays out on the street level. So, and that's why we tell a lot of stories too. Like we don't want to just be focused on the arguments about abortion. I think everyone's pretty familiar with them. (laughs) We want to tell the stories and how those arguments uh, may or may not actually play out at the street level. Yeah, it's a really enlightening work in the way you all structure and telling those stories. And we'll dig into a couple of the stories here in a minute. But that idea of kind of telling those narratives, those stories of real people's lives and how this is being kind of shaping them and affecting them in terms of the enforcement or lack thereof, as we see throughout kind of the story as well. Um, but it's it's a really fascinating approach. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, and I think it kind of ties into probably a lot of the things that you all do. I know you do at World, but you probably learned in the World Journalism Institute as well. Obviously, and you kind of already mentioned this, you are a, a pro-lifer. You're a pro-life advocate in that sense. So is Marvin. How is it that you're when you're writing a historical account like this, how do your own moral and kind of social convictions play in, not just to this specific volume, which obviously it does, but into your research and their writing when you're doing reporting, but even specifically something like this on such a monumentally important issue of abortion, you're pro-lifers, but you're writing something telling the story here. How does kind of your convictions play out in your writing and your research? Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I think one thing in particular that we tried to emphasize in this book was the reality of the unborn baby being a character. That's not necessarily something that you'll see. I mean, there are some really well-written books by people who identify as pro-choice, who, you know, think abortion is okay, or at least women should be able to choose abortion. And they, you know, sometimes you do get those very vivid descriptions of the aborted baby where that baby is recognized as being almost a character, you know, like there's something serious happening when an abortion happens. But we, I think we wanted to especially emphasize that in this book. And so like Marvin, in one of his sections, he tells the story of how some like bones of aborted babies were discovered in the home of an abortionist and the news just went all across the country. And there are descriptions in newspapers of a prosecutor shaking a cigar box with the rattling bones of the babies inside of it. Um, Just those little details to emphasize like the lives lost by abortion the actual characters that, you know, none of us get to know really because of abortion. And we try to also do that in my coverage at World, covering the abortion issue. For instance, I I tend to use the word baby. I mean, scientifically, at different stages of development, you might have different words to describe that human, but I think the word baby is humanizing to the baby, whereas it's easy for someone to say, oh, fetus, embryo, as if you know, as if you can use words like that to overlook the fact that they are a human. When, you know, when we saw, when we call some kid a teenager, we're not saying, oh, that teenager is not a human. No, he's a teenage human, just like maybe it's a, a fetal human or an embryonic human or a baby human, you know. So we use the word baby, or I tend to do that. 
And also when we talk about abortion, we try to avoid the word pro-choice unless it's someone calling themselves pro-choice and we're quoting them. But we tend to use the word pro-abortion because it kind of gets to the issue of, you know, what are we actually talking about? We're not talking about choice because there's someone involved. There's a character. There's the baby. The baby is a character who does not have choice in this. So we're really talking about the issue of abortion. So those are some ways that we kind of focus on that. Also, often when we talk about pro-life legislation, we won't refer to them as much. Sometimes, I guess we will call them abortion bans or restrictions on abortion, but we try to think of it in terms of, okay, well, this is also a protection for unborn babies. And often it's not really protecting that many unborn babies, depending on what the law is. But you can make an argument for that, you know, like a heartbeat ban. You know, it's protecting unborn babies after they have a detectable heartbeat, stuff like that. No, I think that's really helpful, especially one of the things I do when I teach ethics and philosophy is encourage my undergraduates. You know, language matters. The language you use really, really matters. What we call something or someone in the case of a preborn baby, that matters. But then also the language you use to describe other human beings or these actions and not letting our language kind of gloss over the reality of what's actually taking place um, in the horrific pattern of abortion. Um, something I, until this podcast, I literally, I don't know how I missed this, that is the ABCDE. I knew that there was obviously these kind of five concepts that you all use to kind of frame the history. And I'd love to dig a little bit deeper on that. It's just kind of refresher. It's anatomy, Bible, community, danger, and enforcement, or sometimes lack thereof in terms of enforcement. How do these ideas, I mean, I know I'm asking like a million dollar question because we're talking about 400 years of history. And so you can kind of choose to go pick your own adventure here. Um, but how in those concepts, how does that play out then when you're telling a particular story? Like, can you give an example of how those categories are used to describe or to uh, kind of chronicle the history of a particular period or particular story? So my main part of the book was the last section, the last 10 chapters. And so as I was working on the chapters and talking about them with Marvin, I was actually thinking of each of the chapters as fitting in one of those categories. Now, obviously, there would be some overlap, but say the first chapter, here, let me flip to it, Window in the Womb, I think is what we called it. But it's a the chapter about pretty much pro-life pregnancy centers and how like the image of, of an unborn baby, the actual seeing the anatomy of the unborn baby in ultrasounds, how that affected the counseling that they did and the way that they were able to talk to women about abortion. So you know, before the late 1900s, you, you didn't have ultrasound technology. There, you sometimes would get maybe like sculptures. And, and we talk about this in the book where one time at the World's Fair in like the 1930s, there were sculptures of unborn babies at a booth. And, and people would line up to look at this like, oh my goodness, like, look, that is an unborn baby. That's what it looks like. But that wasn't common knowledge. But say me, I was born in the mid 90s. I grew up seeing ultrasound pictures of people, you know, like now everyone posts the ultrasound image of their baby on Facebook when they announce that they're pregnant. So we kind of trace that transition in that chapter 41 and that transition to ultrasound technology, like how that came about, how it affected the counseling that pregnancy centers were able to give and how really it was a it was a great tool for the pro-life movement to be able to have that picture. And even pro-abortion writers will say that the strongest weapon that pro-lifers have is 
um, the image of an aborted baby or the image of, of a baby in the womb. So that's really where this, you know, the shift in the technology is really where that um, advantage comes into play full force. We didn't really have that um, say in, you know, when Roe v. Wade was decided in the 70s. Yeah, that's something that even my organization here at the ERLC, uh, we have what we call the Psalm 139 Project, which is helping to place ultrasound machines at pregnancy resource centers around the country. And that we use that language for, you know, a window to the womb is you're able to see something. And often, and I don't know the stats, it kind of varies, depends on who's telling the stats at the time, but it's a pretty high percentage of women when they see an image of their unborn child in the womb, decide to keep that baby. Or at least there, there's kind of a, a bit of friction there to say, okay, what's actually going on here? What am I actually doing? And I think that's kind of providing that window, kind of that peek into reality of what's actually going on inside the woman's body. And that this is a, a human being. This isn't a clump of cells. This isn't a blob of tissue or just, quote, a fetus or an embryo or something to that effect. Is This is a human being. And we do have, as you mentioned earlier, kind of different language to describe different stages of development. But this is a human being from moment of conception, in my belief, um, all the way through natural birth. One of the figures that kind of comes up repeatedly throughout the story as you're telling this is a lady named Madame Restel and her role as a purveyor of abortion, specifically in New York. Can you tell a little bit about her story and what kind of it tells us about this particular moment in the history of abortion in America? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one one of the letters that comes into play, I think there are several probably that come into play with her story, but one of the big letters is E, enforcement. So hopefully I can explain that later. But um, so Madame Ristel, her real name was Anna Lohman, and her husband worked for a newspaper in New York City. And there was this story that broke about a woman who was uh, murdered. It was a prostitute. She was murdered by a hatchet. You know, a man like killed her with a hatchet. And it really made newspaper sales spike. So Anna Lohman's husband was like, oh my goodness, like this story about this prostitute like made so much money. And he realized that there might be a market for specifically abortion pills. He kind of connected the dots between like the you know, kind of the scandalous nature of the story and maybe who's interested in reading it. And he was like, hey, I think we could make a lot of money, Anna, if you could figure out, you know, what kinds of drugs or herbs can cause abortion and we'll put ads in the newspapers to sell these. So at the time, though, abortion was illegal in New York and as most places. <laughs> um, and But she, Anna Lohman, kind of, adopted this pseudonym of Madame Ristel kind of to sound French and like educated in sexual matters. And they would put ads for these abortion pills, basically abortion drugs in the newspaper, but they would use all of these terms to kind of get around what was actually going on. Cause since abortion was illegal, like, you know, are they going to do this openly? <laughs> no. So they called it say, um, like cures for the stoppage of the menses. Basically, the idea was this will bring back your period. Um, so it wasn't actually saying, you know, this will abort a baby. It was saying that if your period is stopped, take these and we'll, that'll solve the problem. So as they're advertising these, they'll also say things in the newspapers like, oh, you know, if you are pregnant, but they didn't use the word pregnant, they just used asterisks because the word pregnant was not acceptable for, for these ads. 
But basically, they're saying if you're pregnant, you don't want to take these pills. But the implication was that if you are pregnant and you don't want to be pregnant, you know, we've got the solution. So they're, you know, they found a way to utilize um, newspapers to kind of spread the word. And, and Madame Ristel became really a go-to in the community for people who were not wanting to be pregnant. She ended up having very much of a hold on law enforcement in the city. So she was able to basically blackmail people, avoid getting arrested. Even high ups in the city were involved in like her her daughter's wedding. You know, there's all of these connections that she has with the governing officials that allows her to get away with it without anyone actually enforcing the laws against her. And because she didn't actually kill many women who came to her, just their babies, she was able to fly under the radar too. Because it wasn't unless, you know, someone, a woman died that, you know, newspapers would pick up that story and be like, oh, this beautiful woman died at the hands of an abortionist. How terrible. But, you know, the unborn babies that are aborted aren't going to make the headlines. Um, Like, no one knows them. So she was able to get away with it. She did end up going to prison a couple different times. But especially her first time in prison, it was a really cushy situation. Like her husband could visit whenever she got to bring in her own mattress. You know, she would even refer to it as really good advertising for herself because of all the newspaper coverage of her time in prison. (laughs) So, so right there, you can see like how the enforcement element really didn't pan out in Madame Ristel's case. Even after she got out of prison that first time, she continued doing the abortions it wasn't until she lost kind of public favor that she committed suicide. And that obviously ended her career. So, Yeah, I mean, kind of unpacking her story, I mean, you're hearing here of kind of paying off officers. She's kind of getting these cushy gigs. And when she does, uh, when she is arrested and goes to jail, she's avoiding charges outright or even speaking, as you said, kind of in the ads and these euphemisms. What do you think that may reveal, though, kind of about the state specifically at that time, but of the relationship between law and culture? Because I think a lot of people say, well, if it's illegal, no one will do it or no one will be able to have that. But I mean, if you look at the history, you see while it does, the law is designed and we think rightfully to restrain evil and to promote the good, that's the role of government. It's not a kind of a surefire bet that it will actually kind of eliminate it completely. Can you speak to that dynamic a little bit, especially as you're thinking through the history here? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely an issue. Just because you have something in the law doesn't mean people are going to follow it. Not only the everyday people, but even the people in politics. I mean, we see the same thing since the overturn of Roe v. Wade last summer. We see elected prosecuting attorneys in different counties and different states um, saying, you know, if this pro-life law or, you know, this abortion law goes into an effect in my area, I am not going to spend the resources of my office enforcing it. So like, you know, just because something's written down in paper doesn't mean it's written down on people's hearts. So that is certainly a big, a big issue that we'll probably continue to see post-Roe, just like they saw pre-Roe with Madame Ristel and other abortionists for sure. I think one of the things you see kind of in the story of abortion is how it's connected to so many other kind of social issues at the time, especially with the rise of the sexual revolution, the pill, the abortion itself kind of propelling in many ways kind of this idea of freeing sex from the natural duties and responsibilities that flow from that. 
as we think through kind of the way we often frame the abortion debate, as it's often talked about a, the right of women or a right to abortion, we hear that language a lot. But in chapter 18, one of the things that uh, Marvin kind of notes is that he discusses the 14th Amendment. And especially when we think about law, and then there's a quote for the question that Samuel Alito famously asked about how can we have a right to something that's not actually mentioned in the Constitution, and yet it be so rooted in the history and tradition of our nation, as often uh, kind of pro-abortion kind of advocates will speak of. Can you help us to understand a little bit about kind of the language of rights as it ties to abortion, kind of as we're thinking through the, the broad swath of history, especially in the history of abortion? that connection between rights and the question of abortion, what is the connection there, especially as that becomes such a, a common phrase today that we have a, quote, right to abortion, or these are women's rights? Um, how does that connection begin even as in American history? So I guess just that issue of claiming it as women's rights, I mean, it wasn't always seen as a feminist issue. Like a lot of these pro-life groups today will point out how the early feminists were not for abortion because they saw how it could be used to take advantage of women. And they also, you know, they don't think it's okay. It's not just like an oppression issue, but also like it was not socially acceptable to get abortions because it ended the life of a human being. So I think kind of seeing, you know, just pre-Roe when like Betty Friedan kind of became involved with the pro-abortion movement um, it was these, actually some men like Lawrence Later and Bernard Nathanson that like got her involved and were like, oh, we need the feminists on our side to help push this, you know, women's rights. But uh, in fact, there's just a lot of connections in the history of the abortion industry that's tied to eugenics. It's tied to, you know, just a very racist view of culture, um, wanting to get rid of poor populations, um, disabled people you name it, like it doesn't have nice roots. <laughs> it's not, it wasn't originally um, a women's issue. Now, when it comes to like the rights of the unborn baby, you mentioned the 14th Amendment and how, I guess, there, you know, there's one argument that, well, they didn't mention abortion at the time. They didn't mention unborn babies at the time. So how could we know that this would apply to unborn babies? Well, at the time, you can kind of look at the historical record and see that the people you know, the politicians who backed the 14th Amendment in the states that they were in were largely pro-life. So we we can see cases of like the amendment's primary framer. He was an Ohio representative, John Bingham, and he started out as a district attorney in Ohio and women in his own area were dying from abortions along with their unborn babies. And so he was seeing this happen, you know, he was seeing abortions going on in his area and overall, like these politicians were pro-life. The reason why they didn't mention it in the amendment and why the focus was on just the slavery issue was because that was like at the forefront of everyone's minds. Like that was the issue that was taking up the headlines. No one was really talking about abortion. They were talking about slavery. So that's why we see that focus in the language. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the people at that time were like, oh yeah, abortion's okay. No, that's not what the history books actually say. I mean, as you're writing, so, I mean, this is a huge project. I mean, obviously, Marvin wrote so much of it. You kind of focus, as you said, on the last 10 chapters. 
as you were doing your research and kind of writing, kind of doing, digging into the stories and the newspaper clippings and things, was there anything that surprised you about kind of the history of abortion in America that you were like, hey, I may have known that, but didn't know the depth, or that was just kind of a new story or a new angle that I just wasn't aware of? Anything that kind of stood out to you or surprised you as you were doing your work for this? Yeah, so I think the thing that surprised me the most was the accounts of doctors from the 1800s who were saying things like, life begins at the point of fertilization. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. I mean, that's what that's what I believe, and that's what most doctors today believe, but I didn't realize that even doctors back in the 1800s knew that. Because, you know, the Roe v. Wade opinion asserts that there is no consensus about when life begins. Okay, that might be true of historians or of legal scholars, but apparently among doctors, there was a consensus, there was a general understanding that life begins at conception. And you have lectures from these doctors in the 1830s saying things like that, saying that, you know, as an obstetrician and gynecologist, when I have a pregnant woman in my office, I am treating not just her as one patient, but also a second patient, which is the unborn baby in her womb. So I think that really surprised me a lot when I first saw those chapters that Marvin wrote. Well, obviously with a work like this, there's so many angles and different questions we could ask, but as we kind of wrap up the conversation for today, I'd love to hear maybe some works or books that you would recommend for listeners. I mean, I think when we we hear some of these stories, we're really intrigued. I encourage folks to go grab a copy of this book, The Story of Abortion. It was recently published with Crossway. It's a great hardback book. Uh, there is a lot there to kind of chew on. It's something you can slowly kind of work through, especially with the way you all designed of having kind of these small chapters. So when I think when some people hear like 40 chapters or 10 chapters, like, oh man, this book must be thousands and thousands of pages. It's a pretty good sized book, but it's also very manageable in kind of these bite-sized chunks as you dig into the stories. Were there certain resources that were helpful for you or that you would recommend for folks if they want to pick up and go a little bit deeper on some of the historical views here? Yeah, so since a lot of my stuff was a little more recent, I did rely a lot on reporting from the last few decades um, from World specifically, where I currently work. Um, so World does have, and historically has had, very extensive coverage on on the issue of abortion. So uh, if you go on our website, um, you can search the archives and find coverage from, you know, back in the 90s, um, even before that. And there's some really good articles out there. I think in Marvin's sections, he relied somewhat on this one book by Cynthia Gorney. She's a, I don't know if she's currently with the Washington Post, but she at least used to be with the Washington Post. And she wrote a really good kind of street level history of the abortion wars. It's called Articles of Faith. It's really well written. It's pretty thick, but uh, it's one of those books that the way she writes it is, um, you know, very accessible and like, human interest focus. Now she's pro, she would call herself pro-choice, but she's very fair to the pro-lifers that she depicts in the story or in the book. Um, so that would be one recommendation as far as like a whole book. But I mean, I guess another resource, if you're wanting to keep up with like what's happening now, I put out a newsletter every week on the issue of abortion on, it's called Vitals. So people can sign up for it on our website, wng.org. And then scroll down to the bottom, and then there's a newsletters link. And the one that I send out is Vitals. So that's just like week by week updates on what's been happening on the abortion issue. 
I think there's this one anthology that Marvin recommending this one. It's kind of, I don't know if we can really recommend it, but it's really interesting. It's an anthology of poetry and essays and kind of like artistic writing by women who have had abortions. And I think it's called Choice Words. But Marvin quotes it, I believe, in some of his chapters to kind of show that even people who are kind of celebrating their abortions recognize that there's a death involved in this. So that was one kind of interesting, that would kind of give an interesting perspective to the, like inside the mind of someone who has gone through this and and who even thinks they did the right thing. But you can also recognize that there's that little hint of, oh, you know, someone died. There's a death. So... No, those are super helpful. And one of the things we always kind of champion on this podcast is that we can read things we disagree with. Uh, Most of us, we probably have some listeners that aren't adults, but I always tell my college students, I say, look, you can engage with ideas that you disagree with. We can even recommend books for you to check out. As you dig deep, you need to be honest about the reality, not only the history, as you all so much did such a good job in this history of kind of telling the real history of abortion kind of at that street level, but engaging with ideas and people and concepts and issues uh, as they are, not always as we want them to be. Um, actually helps us to be sharper and better and to be, uh, I think, to honor the Lord as we seek to love him and to love our neighbors ourselves. And so I think those are really, really helpful resources. I really encourage listeners uh, to go check out Leah's uh, Vitals newsletter on uh, WNG on World News Group. It's a very helpful resource. I think I definitely think that would be a benefit to you as you kind of follow, as we do here on the podcast, a lot of theological, ethical, and philosophical conversations. But Leah, I thank you so much, one, for taking the time to join us here today on the podcast, but also the really hard work work uh, that you and Marvin put on this. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Jason. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you connect with Leah and learn more about her new book, The Story of Abortion in America, A Street-Level History, as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Caden Christian and technical production by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.